Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig with details. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. A few years ago, I was in Philadelphia and went to the Eastern State Penitentiary, which was a prison for about 150 years, and now it's a historic site. And one of the things I learned about while I was there was a dramatic escape from the prison in 1945, and I immediately put that into my little notes (laughs) app on my phone where I jot things down when I'm on vacation. It was one of those things, though, that I couldn't quite figure out how to make it work as an episode, and I kept circling back to it periodically. It finally dawned on me that it might work as a set of six impossible episodes, because there are some common themes among a lot of the prison break stories. Like, there's often a lot of tunneling. (laughs) Uh, so, uh, a couple times a year, I pull together six episodes that are, are... grouped together in some way, and and so now we're going to have six prison breaks. And just to level set here, I would not at all call this a representative sample of history's prison escape attempts, because number one, the vast majority of information we have for this episode is from places where English is the predominant language, and that's just a matter of what's available to us. Uh, Number two, I was really focused on escapes that seemed particularly ingenious in how they were planned and carried out, not on ones that were violent. So there is a little violence in this episode, but it 
it is not one where the, you know, a, a prison break happened in the middle of a violent uprising where a lot of people got killed. I was really looking at the ones that are kind of offbeat a little bit in some ways. <laughs> right. This is more Shawshank Redemption than horrible riot situation. Yeah, several of them seem like clear inspirations for some of the Shawshank escape. So just know that going in. All right, so we're going to start with the prison break that inspired this episode. The Eastern State Penitentiary opened in 1829, and it was built in an era when reformers were trying to change the way prisons and the criminal justice system worked. In Philadelphia, this effort was led by the Philadelphia Society for Alleviating the Miseries of Public Prisons, whose members were predominantly Quakers. The prison was called a penitentiary because its purpose was to inspire penitents among the people housed there by keeping them in a state of isolated, silent contemplation. Hundreds of prisons that followed this theory were built around the world in the 19th century. Although these reformers were trying to move away from things like public floggings and executions for relatively minor crimes and also to make incarceration more humane, this system that they devised was innately cruel. It came to be known as the Pennsylvania system, and it was basically perpetual solitary confinement. People were totally alone in these single occupancy cells that had attached, small, walled-in exercise yards. They were forced to wear hoods when they were in common areas so they couldn't see or talk to anybody else. And over time, the prison moved away from this practice, and the Pennsylvania system was officially abandoned by 1913. By that point, more people had recognized that endless solitary confinement was in fact cruel. But the system that replaced it was cruel just in a different way. Overcrowding became a major issue, with new cell blocks built between the existing ones until a prison that had originally housed 250 people instead housed 1,700. A series of riots and uprisings took place in the 1930s in response to poor conditions at the prison and to low pay at the on-site workshops and factories where they were forced to work. In 1944, a plasterer and stonemason named Clarence Kleindienst, who was known as Kleine, was housed in cell 68 of cell block 7. And this was at the far end of one of those cell blocks that had been planned as part of the prison's initial design as a penitentiary. And it's possible that he moved into the cell with the intention of tunneling out of it from the beginning. It had been used for storage, and he had offered to repair it so that he could live in it. Once he was housed in cell 68, he and his cellmate, William Russell, started digging a tunnel in secret, one that went through the cell wall, then down 12 feet, requiring a ladder to get to the bottom. From there, the tunnel leveled out and stretched about 100 feet, running under the exercise yard and the wall that encircled the prison, and then up again to the street outside. They made a plaster mask so it would look like one of them was in bed. That one would dig while the other kept watch. And they'd put the dirt they dug up in their pockets and then scatter it in the exercise yard. Kleindienst hid the entrance to this tunnel with a panel that he made to roughly match the intact walls of the cell and then put a metal trash can in front of it. And in the tunnel, he shored it up with wood and installed lights and ventilation fans. When the tunnel intersected with a sewer pipe under the prison, they built a connection to the pipe so they could dispose of their waste through a sewer. This was a complex engineering feat 
handled with whatever they could cobble together. It's pretty ingenious. On April 3rd, 1945, 12 men escaped through this tunnel, going to cell 68 while everyone else was on the way to breakfast. At the end of the tunnel, they broke through the last few feet of earth and scattered in different directions as they came out of it. Most of them, though, were back in the prison within a day, and all of them had been caught within a few months. Notorious bank robber Willie Sutton, who would later totally take credit for this escape in his autobiography, he was caught almost immediately. He basically came out of the hole and they grabbed him right there. Clarence Kleindienst was in custody after about three hours. One group tried to make their getaway in a milk truck that they stole, and they were caught after police rammed the truck with a police car. One man, who was 24-year-old James Grace, turned himself in eight days after the escape. William Russell and one other man were both shot during the escape attempt, and they were brought back to the prison infirmary. Otherwise, the men who tried to escape were punished. Some of them were placed into these tiny, windowless underground cells known as Klondikes. These were too small to even stand up in. Of course, this whole escape was enormously embarrassing for the prison. It was not at all the first escape attempt or even the first successful escape attempt from the Eastern State Penitentiary. That had happened all the way back in 1832. But it was a colossal security breach. Months of digging had gone unnoticed, and more than one inspection of cell 68 had failed to spot that tunnel entrance. Prison authorities investigated and mapped the tunnel, and then they filled it in and covered up the entrance with cement. Then later in 2005, Eastern State Penitentiary embarked on an archaeological study to find and map the tunnel. This effort included ground-penetrating radar work, cameras, and a small robotic rover that was kind of remote-controlled and went down the tunnel. They had to use a jackhammer to get through the tunnel's covered-over entrance. As we said earlier, Eastern State Penitentiary is now a historic site, and as of 2017, its mission is to interpret the legacy of American criminal justice reform. Yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit more in the behind the scenes on Friday. Moving on. For about 80 years, starting in 1788, people convicted of crimes in the UK could be transported to Australia as punishment. Other colonies as well, but Australia is the focus here. Often, this was for a period of seven years, but a lot of people sent to Australia never returned to Britain again. They either couldn't afford to make the trip or they didn't want to after having made a life for themselves in Australia. And only a small number of people who were sentenced to transportation had been convicted of a violent crime. A lot of them had been convicted of offenses that most people would think of as pretty petty today, Women in particular tended to have been convicted of things like stealing handkerchiefs or cloth or pickpocketing. Our next prison break was a group of women who were being held at Limerick Jail in Ireland, awaiting transportation to Australia. They were supposed to be transferred to a prison in Cork on May 23, 1830, which is where they would embark on this ship that was going to take them to Australia. But the night before that transfer to Cork, nine women and a baby escaped from Limerick Jail. The women were Mary King, Mary Hurley, Mary Devon, Ellen Hurley, Margaret Shaughnessy, Margaret Clancy, Bridget Shelton, Mary Hickey, and Catherine Welsh. And the baby was Mary Devon's 11-month-old daughter. 
As escapes go, this one is maybe less dramatic than some of the others that we're talking about today, but it does still involve some ingenuity. Leading up to their transfer date, these women made a habit of singing and, quote, noisy vociferations after dark. So it had been established that they were just loud. Someone had provided them with a file, some nitric acid, also called aquafortis, and other tools to help them get out of their cells. Then, on the 23rd, two men used a ladder that workers had left behind while making repairs to get into the women's ward. The men started helping the women get their cells open while the women got to their nightly singing to cover up the noise. In the words of the Monmouthshire Merlin, quote, this amusement they enjoyed with more than ordinary spirit on this occasion and without exciting any particular notice. Meantime, the iron fastenings were assailed by the burglars with extraordinary success. The continued knocking was heard in the adjacent ward, but the sound of their operations was so drowned in the melody of the accompanying voices as not to reach the ears of the jail governor or his assistants. The locks gave way before repeated efforts, and nine females with an infant were extricated from Durant's vial. Once they were out of their cells, the women and their accomplices climbed back down the ladder and used it to get over the outer walls unnoticed. But these women did not stay at large for long. Mary Hickey was caught the night of the escape, and newspapers reported on the capture of other women in the following days, including Catherine Welsh, who asked to be taken back to the Limerick jail after being caught shoplifting. Yeah, they were going to take her to a different jail, and she was like, can I just go back to Limerick, because that's where I escaped from. (laughs) It appears that with one possible exception, all of the women involved in this prison break did wind up being transported to Australia. Two of them are mentioned in an article about a ship that departed for Australia on January 29th of 1831, And then all but one of the rest of them are listed on ship's actual registers of the people being transported. So there were five on a ship that departed on September 27th, 1831, and then one on a ship that left on March 9th of 1833. So that leaves only one of the women unaccounted for. We are going to take a sponsor break, uh, and after that, we'll come back to more Escape Stories. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Next up. We have the escape from Alcatraz in 1962. And way back in 2008, prior hosts of the show, Candace and Josh, did an episode titled, Did Someone Really Escape from Alcatraz? Number one, that is forever ago. It was an entirely different show with a different format at that point. And most of that 10-minute episode is focused more on the general history of Alcatraz as a prison and not on the escape itself. Uh, if you're interested in the more general history of Alcatraz, we talk about that a bit in our two-parter on the occupation of Alcatraz. Those episodes came out in 2019. So Alcatraz is an island in San Francisco Bay. It has a steep, rocky shoreline, and it is surrounded by treacherous waters. Although this may have discouraged people from trying to escape, there were still 14 different escape attempts during Alcatraz's time as a federal prison. That was from 1934 to 1963. Nearly all of the 36 men involved in these attempts were captured or killed, but five of them are classified as missing and presumed drowned. Two of them were Theodore Cole and Ralph Rowe, who filed through the bars of a window in the mat shop and tried to escape during a storm in 1937. The other three were involved in the 1962 escape. There were actually four men involved in this attempt. Frank Morris, John Anglin, John's brother Clarence, and Alan West. They had all been convicted of various burglaries, robberies, and thefts, and they'd all been incarcerated together before, and they all knew each other. 
They had been transferred to Alcatraz after having tried to escape from other prisons. They started planning to escape from Alcatraz in December of 1961. Morris and the Anglins had been assigned cells that were adjacent to one another, and one of them found some old saw blades they thought they could use. These men improvised so much for this escape attempt. They improvised tools to dig and break through walls, including making a drill from a vacuum cleaner motor, although that turned out to be too noisy for them to really use. Scrap wood became basic paddles, and a concertina, that is a musical instrument that's sort of like an accordion, became a pump to inflate their raft. And that raft... Apparently, using instructions they found in Popular Mechanics, they made a 6-foot-by-14-foot raft out of about 50 raincoats. They may have taken some of these raincoats from other men by force, but there was also a rumor that if anybody successfully escaped from Alcatraz, the government would shut the prison down. So it seems like some of the men were happy to kind of wear their raincoats out to the exercise yard and then leave them there to be picked up, kind of donating them to this effort to get the prison shut down. The escaping men then used contact cement they had stolen from various workshops around the prison and heat from the steam pipes to vulcanize the seams of the raft. They used this same method to also make life preservers. Each of their cells had an air vent, and they used various tools to make a series of holes around these vents so that the whole thing in each cell could be pulled out from the wall. This got them into a utility corridor where they made and hid what they would need to escape. Yet another improvised tool with all this was a periscope, which they used to watch for guards while they were working. They also worked out a way to get from the corridor and onto the prison roof. Similarly to how Clarence Kleindienst and William Russell had used a mask they made to make it look like one of them was in bed while the other one was digging a tunnel, These four men made heads out of homemade plaster and painted them, topped them with human hair so that it would make it look like they were asleep in their beds. Um, These heads, I think they're actually pretty good. (laughs) They're better than I could do, I think. (laughs) On June 11th, 1962, Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers went out through their removed ventilation grates, covering the hole behind them with whatever they could. Alan West had tried to reinforce the concrete around his grate and had accidentally cemented it in place. And by the time he was able to get it free, his accomplices had already left. From up on the roof, Morris and the Anglins climbed down a smokestack and then over a fence, cutting through the barbed wire at the top of the fence. And then they seemed to have launched their raft from the northeast corner of the island. But then what happened to them after that is a mystery. During bed check on the morning of June 12th, a guard at first thought that the three men were still asleep in their beds, but then realized they weren't in their cells after touching one of the fake heads through the bars, and a manhunt began. Authorities recovered a package of letters sealed in rubber, paddles, and life vests either in the water or washed up at various points around the San Francisco Bay. Sailors from a Norwegian freighter reportedly saw a body in the water on July 17th, but did not report that until October. Although there have been some simulations that suggest that the three men could have made it to shore, was theoretically possible, at this point they are presumed to have drowned in their escape attempt. 
The FBI closed the case on December 31st of 1979. Although Alcatraz did close less than a year after this escape, it was because the prison needed a multi-million dollar restoration project. And on top of that, it was expensive to operate because of its island location. The federal government decided that it would be cheaper to just build a whole new prison than to try to restore and keep running Alcatraz. Next up. Libby Prison was originally a food warehouse, and then later it became home to a grocery and ship provisioning business. It was in Richmond, Virginia, and during the U.S. Civil War, the Confederate government took it over and turned it into a prison to house U.S. prisoners of war, particularly U.S. military officers. And conditions there were really just appalling. Obviously, it was not built to be a prison, and beyond that, it was situated on a canal that routinely flooded the building's cellar in wet weather, and the rising waters drove rats out of the cellar and into the rest of the structure. The windows were open spaces covered in bars, and they let in little fresh air, but not much light, and they didn't offer much protection from storms or extreme temperatures. The upper two floors where the prisoners were housed were very sparsely furnished. There weren't even enough bunks for everyone. This was an immensely overcrowded facility with as many as 1,000 people packed into just six rooms without enough food or supplies. Unsurprisingly, disease was rampant. Colonel Thomas E. Rose of the 77th Pennsylvania Volunteer Infantry started planning an escape almost as soon as he arrived at Libby Prison. He thought it might be possible to dig a tunnel from that rat-filled cellar to a nearby tobacco shed where they could get out without being seen by guards. Because all of the rats and the ongoing flooding problems made the cellar smell terrible, so bad that it was nicknamed Rat Hell, that also meant the Confederate guards mostly stayed out of it. So this was one place they could work on a tunnel, mostly undetected. Construction of an escape tunnel started with removing bricks from behind a stove in the kitchen, which was the only room the imprisoned men were allowed free access to. This made an entry into the cellar. And from there, Rose and his accomplices started digging with makeshift tools, putting the dirt into an old spittoon to take it away. It was hard to tell how far they'd gotten, though, and at one point they broke through the surface and realized that they still had several feet left to go. They managed to fill that accidental opening in before they were noticed. Robert Knox Needham was a cartographer who was being held at a neighboring prison. And he wrote this account of the escape, which happened on February 9th, 1864. Quote, everyone wanted to be first. In order to get down the chimney, as well as the long tunnel, it was necessary to strip naked, wrap the clothes in a bundle, and push this on before them. As soon as it was seen that only a few men could possibly get out before daylight, all rushed for the mouth of the tunnel who could each man being determined to get out first. The room was now crowded to suffocation, all struggling to get in the hole. The strongest men forced their way to the front while the weak ones were more roughly brushed aside and jammed up against the walls. Sneedon also made a map of the prison in watercolor, showing the prison, the tunnel route, nearby streets and other buildings, and the James River and its adjacent canal. That map is now in the collection of the Virginia Historical Society. 
In one account of this escape during the roll call the next day, a Confederate official said, where are they all? And somebody answered, they fell out the window, which cracks me up. (laughs) Whole lot of window drops. Uh, 109 men managed to escape through that tunnel, with more than half of them successfully making it to Union territory. Some of the ones who managed to evade capture had help from Union spy Elizabeth Van Lu, who was mentioned in our prior episode on Mary Elizabeth Bowser, which was a Saturday classic not too long ago. 48 of the men were recaptured, and two drowned while trying to cross a river. Colonel Rose, who had started the whole escape plan, was one of the ones recaptured, and he was held at Libby until April 30th, 1864, when he was released as part of a prisoner exchange. A few weeks after this escape, H. Judson Kilpatrick and Ulrich Dahlgren tried to liberate the prison, but they were discovered. Dahlgren was killed, and papers he was carrying with him suggested that there was a plan in the works to burn down Richmond and kill Confederate President Jefferson Davis. After this, Richmond's Provost Marshal John H. Winder authorized Major Thomas Pratt Turner, who was commandant of the prison, to dig a pit under the prison fill it with gunpowder, and blow the whole thing up if there were any further escape attempts. That threat was never carried out. Soon the Confederate Army started transferring men out of Libby to other prisons. After the war was over, the entire thing was dismantled and moved to Chicago, where it operated as the Libby Prison War Museum from 1889 to 1899. I have many questions about that. but I did not look into answering them because it was outside (laughs) the scope of this podcast. Uh, We're going to take a quick sponsor break and then get to two more escapes. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. 
And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Next up, we have Shiratori Yoshie, who successfully escaped from four different prisons in Japan in the 1930s and 40s. English-language accounts of these escapes have some contradictions. This was also true of Japanese accounts that I found and ran through Google Translate. But still, the basics and the places where they kind of intersect are just fascinating. He was initially imprisoned for burglary and murder in a crime that had been committed by a group of men, and he maintained that he had not been involved in the murder, and there are some accounts of this that describe him as falsely accused. His first escape was from Aomori Prison after he'd been incarcerated there for about three years. He had found a piece of wire in a wash tub, and he used that wire to pick the locks. He was caught just a few days later. Then in 1942, he was transferred to Akita Prison. His cell had been designed to deter escape attempts, but he noticed that the wood around a skylight in the ceiling was starting to rot, so he climbed up there night after night, loosening the rotten wood. Then he waited for a stormy night to disguise the sound of his moving along the prison roof, and then he climbed up through that skylight he removed and then climbed out. Shiratori maintained that the accusations against him were false and that his incarceration was unjust. And then he went to the home of a police officer who had previously been kind to him. He had hoped that the officer would be willing to help him, but instead the officer turned him in. And Shiratori wound up at a Bashuri prison. This was Japan's northernmost prison, and it was a place where some of the nation's most notorious people were housed. Even though the prison was supposed to be escape-proof, Shiratori was kept handcuffed there except when he was bathing. For this escape, and this is the detail that made me put this on the list, Shiratori spit the miso soup from his meals onto his handcuffs and the meal slot in his door. If you've had miso soup, you know it's really salty, so he was wanting the salt in the soup to weaken the metal in his handcuffs and that meal slot. This was during World War II, and the prison had huge skylights in the roof, so it was kept in blackout conditions at night. On the night of August 26, 1944, Shiratori broke through his weakened handcuffs and meal slot, reportedly dislocating his shoulders to do so, 
and escaped through the skylights under cover of darkness. Abashiri Prison is now a museum and has a model of Shiratori climbing to the windowed roof to escape in his underwear. Although details are fuzzy about how exactly he climbed up to the skylights if he had just dislocated his shoulders. Yeah, even if he had popped his own shoulders back into place, that seems like it would have been incredibly painful and difficult to try to do because it was, it's not a low ceiling. It's like a very high ceiling with big skylights up there. Regardless of the detail with that, though, Shiratori hid in an abandoned mine until after the end of World War II. And then a farmer caught him stealing food from the fields, and Shiratori stabbed him. The farmer later died of his injuries, and Shiratori maintained that the stabbing had been done in self-defense. At this point, Shiratori had escaped from prison three times, and he had been convicted of committing other crimes in addition to that first robbery and murder during his escape. So he was sentenced to death. He was housed at Sapporo Prison to await his execution. Two of his previous escapes had involved climbing up through ceilings and roofs. So that was apparently where the guards focused when they secured his cell. So in 1947, he went out through the floor instead. He pried up the floorboards and then used, again, the bowls from his meals. He used them as shovels to shovel through the dirt underneath the floor. He was once again caught. That was about a year later. But this time, rather than adding to his sentence again, a court ruled that Shiratori really had stabbed the farmer in self-defense after he had escaped from Abashiri prison. His sentence was reduced to 20 years in prison, and he was released in 1961. He lived free for quite some time. He died in 1979. Yeah, he, uh, as I understand it, became kind of an anti-hero in, <laughs> in, uh, in Japan because of all of this. And now we have one last escapee who is another man, but his wife is the one who should really be credited with planning it and carrying it out. This was William Maxwell, the fifth Earl of Nithsdale, who was probably born at Terrigal's Castle in Scotland in 1676. His father had died when he was a child, and he was raised mostly by his mother, who was a Catholic and then later a Jacobite, that is, a supporter of the Stuart claim to the British throne after the Stuarts were forced into exile during the Glorious Revolution of 1688. When William became an adult, he married Lady Winifred Herbert. They met while William was in France to pledge his loyalty to the exiled James II and VII, and Winifred was visiting her father, who was one of the people who helped get James's wife and son out of England during the Glorious Revolution. Once they returned to Scotland, they tried to be discreet about their religion and their political views, since most of their neighbors were Protestants. But they were still the targets of suspicion, and on Christmas Eve 1703, a mob broke down the castle gates and ransacked the property looking for any Catholics they might be harboring. Yeah, their political views also would have been treason, so it was very important to keep that very quiet. Uh, William was cleared of any wrongdoing after this uh, mob breaking down his door, but he was stripped of one of his titles and ordered to pay a bond to ensure that he would not plot against the throne. Authorities kept him under close watch, and during all of this, he bequeathed most of his property to his eldest son. This might have been an attempt to protect that property from being confiscated if he were arrested again. In 1715, William was part of the Jacobite Rising of 1715. We have covered the Jacobite Risings on the show before, and briefly, 
This was one of a series of failed attempts to restore the Stuarts to the British throne. William commanded a group of gentlemen volunteers, and after the Battle of Preston, he was one of almost 1,500 Jacobites taken prisoner. In January of 716, he pled guilty to treason, and on February 9th, he was sentenced to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. His execution was scheduled for February 21st. Winifred was determined to get him released, so she traveled to London. This was wintertime when the snow became too deep for her carriage to get through. She finished the journey on horseback. She met with King George I, clinging to his robes when he refused to accept a petition on her husband's behalf. She refused to let go of those robes as he tried to walk away from her, and so he dragged her across the room. And as word spread about that, that wound up earning her some popular support. People did not like the idea that the the king had dragged this distraught wife across the room. She bribed the guards at the Tower of London, where William was being held, to allow him to receive visitors and gifts, and she visited him repeatedly, often with the company of other women. On the night before he was to be executed, she arrived with her maid, Cecilia Evans, and her friends, Mrs. Morgan and Mrs. Mills, and she had brought women's clothes and makeup with her. As Winifred got William dressed and made up, she had a loud conversation with her friends about where in the world Cecilia had disappeared to. She knew exactly where Cecilia was. This was all part of a ruse meant to be overheard by the guards. Winifred's companions then left the prison one by one, and then they were followed by Winifred and William together as though William were her maid. He was hiding the lower part of his face behind a handkerchief because they did not have time to shave him before leading him out. Oh, this is, I can think of so many comedy troops I would love to see recreate this. Uh, Once William was outside, Winifred doubled back, went to his empty cell, and had a pretend conversation with him, closing the door behind her when she left. On the way out, she told the guards he was at prayer and should not be disturbed. The guards didn't even realize William was gone until everyone involved in this ruse was safely away from the tower. Yeah, this whole thing really banked on causing the guards to be confused about exactly how many women had arrived with her (laughs) and where precisely they were at any given moment. Uh, After getting out of the tower, William took refuge at the Venetian embassy, and then he escaped to Dover while dressed as a Venetian ambassador. He went to Bruges by boat and then to Paris, where he reconnected with his wife. The two of them became part of the Stuart court in exile. In 1717, they moved to Rome, and that is where William died in 1744. William had a reputation for always living beyond his means, and he died in debt. But Winifred became a popular heroine in Jacobite writing. She died in 1749. All right, if you're thinking, hey, why wasn't the John Dillinger escape in here? That was pretty ingenious. Yes, that's true, but there is an episode on Dillinger already. That is going to be an upcoming Saturday classic. Yeah. (laughs) Seemed like a good thing to add in there, since um, they do talk about that escape in that prior episode. Do you have a little bit of listener mail that may or may not involve things escaping? I do. I mean, it could involve things escaping, but I hope not, because it's mostly about cats. Uh, This is from Elizabeth, who wrote, 
Hello to two of my favorite podcasters. I'm a graduate of the Miston History University, but have never had anything really superior to offer. But I figured Tracy's comment about black cats being automatic friends with her cats gave me a good excuse to write. Also, I'm a masshole who now lives in North Carolina. So Tracy and I pretty much swapped locations. I grew up near Cape Cod but went to graduate school at Emerson in Boston, so her references to things in Boston make me happy. I've lived outside of Raleigh for the last 15 years, though. In January 2021, as a single healthcare worker suffering tremendously in every way at work, lack of socializing, etc., in the midst of a pandemic, I started fostering for my local animal shelter. Since then, I've had 35 foster cats and kittens, and I'm extremely proud of myself for only adopting one of them, This girl became friends with my younger cat. I have two almost 15-year-olds that were mad when I brought home a 10-week-old kitten in December 2019 that my coworker had found hit by a car. This foster was approximately two years old and was trapped in downtown Raleigh with a horrible-looking nose seen in one of the pics now completely healed and from an upper respiratory infection. She was the sweetest thing ever from the very first day despite her being so sick. And Malcolm, my other younger cat, finally had a best friend. I named her Salem, thinking it was a great name due to my Massachusetts roots and not realizing what a common name it was for black cats. But Malcolm and Salem sound similar, and I can't imagine her having any other name or my life without her. I'm a speech therapist, and I had bought talk buttons for Malcolm, but he never quite figured them out. Salem did within days, and I keep adding more buttons for her to push to communicate She's the sweetest, smartest girl ever and has become Mama Salem to all the foster kittens I've had. She also came to work with me frequently at the nursing home I worked at until last summer as a therapy cat. Just thought I would let Tracy know that her cats have another friend in North Carolina. Attached are some pics with former foster kittens and her best friend Malcolm, the big boy. I love her so much. Uh, So uh, then there's just just a glorious gallery of cat pictures. Kitties. Number one, thank you for uh, for fostering kittens. I know a lot of people who do that and who have started doing that specifically during the pandemic or have started fostering other animals during the pandemic, and it's so important and can also be a really good way for people who want to have animals around but, like, can't be the permanent caregiver for an animal for forever for whatever reason. I also love the talk buttons for cats and have been considering getting uh, some for my own cats, but I have not actually started that whole process yet. Um, I kind of think if I did, our cat Onyx would just push the open button over and over because all she wants to do is to have my office door be open. She especially wants it to be open while we're recording podcasts and she sits out there and bangs on the doorknob. It's not great. Um, (laughs) So uh, these pictures were all so, so adorable. I am guessing one of the reasons that Salem is a popular name for black cats is that Salem is the name of Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Uh, Her black cat familiar is named uh, Salem. So I think that's one of the reasons that Salem and black cats go together. Uh, So anyway, thank you so much. (laughs) Elizabeth, I love all of these pictures and all of these stories, and I want to pet all these kitty cats. Uh, If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, or just your cats, or just any pets you have, (laughs) or a dog you saw, or maybe you were outside and there was a cute bird, whatever, it's great. Uh, We're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. 
And we're all over social media at Missed in History, which is where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. Uh, and you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.